You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, this morning we're arriving at a special little island that you're going to see up on the screen. As we fly above this little island, it seems very orderly this morning. It seems also very mysterious as we look out of the plane windows. As we finally land and we get off, there is a large sign that greets us. It reads this, greetings, you've always been destined to be here. Welcome to Calvinism Island. As we walk through the airport, we continue to descend on our destination, and we notice that all of the walls are lined with books, book after book after book after book, and someone from our party grabs the book and decides to open it and examine it. The book is titled Reformed Dating, Reformed Dating. You glance over and you see the chapter is on Calvinist pickup lines, number seven, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Number eight, you're not just my destiny, babe. You're my pre-destiny. Number nine, girl, have you been reading John Piper? Because I'm your future grace. You keep walking. Welcome to Calvinism Island this morning. I know many of you didn't choose to be on this island, but God chose you to be here this morning with us. Calvinism essentially refers to a theological system, uh, a theological framework for understanding God, for understanding how God works in the world, especially when it comes to salvation, to salvation. It's named after John Calvin, who was a French reformer, and he emphasized the sovereignty of God, the rule of God, the the reign of God, the, the priority of God in our salvation. Now, there's an ongoing debate in the church, not this church, hopefully, but Uh, The church at large was an ongoing debate about Calvinism waged by the Arminians. Now, the Arminians are not from Arminia, but they're the followers of Jacobus Arminius, of course, was another reformer and and a professor. the, The debate essentially centers around the topic of free will and predestination. Free will and predestination. Now, I'll often get this question where do you land on this particular debate? Where do you land on this particular debate? And my answer is always, I don't like labels. I don't like labels, but I love the the answer of the late British pastor, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile human responsibility and predestination? How do you reconcile human responsibility and predestination? And Spurgeon says, I would never try. I don't try to reconcile friends. I would never try. I don't try to reconcile friends. The point is, in the Bible, human responsibility and divine sovereignty, predestination, they're not enemies. They're friends. They're not even feuding neighbors this morning. But in fact, that they're friends that, that work together. They're not in an endless cold war, but in fact, they are working together. In the movie Oppenheimer, the, the great scientific 
question is asked at the beginning of the film. And the question is this, is light a particle or is it a wave? Is light a particle or is it a wave? And somehow, paradoxically, it's both. It's both. In quantum physics or quantum mechanics, we're still exploring how could it be both? How is it possible? It's a mystery. It's both. It's something we fully don't grasp yet. And if that could be true in the natural world, how much more true is it in the supernatural world? That there are things we don't fully grasp yet. And so the answer is somehow, paradoxically, it's both. There is both human responsibility and divine sovereignty in predestination, and somehow they work together. God is sovereign. He predestined us. He chose us. He saved us. This morning, if you're in Christ, if you find yourself having faith in Jesus Christ, He's predestined you. You desire God. You desire to be in the church. You desire to sacrifice your time, your talent for an invisible kingdom. He's saved you. He's opened your eyes in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we're responsible. Whether you're in Christ this morning, whether you're outside of Christ this morning, we have a will. Your actions matter. Those who are not with God in this life and the next, that's on them, not on God. And in order to be a Christian this morning, you have to choose to repent, to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust Him for all that He's done for you, to receive His Spirit in your life to make you new. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. How are these two things compatible? Predestination, human responsibility. How do they work together? And the answer this morning I have for you is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I'm comfortable with that. There are some things in life that it's okay to not have a full certainty on, especially when we're talking about the divine God Almighty. And in this passage this morning, what we're going to see as we're at the Calvinist HQ this morning, because we teach the Bible, because we preach the Bible, the emphasis in this passage is on the sovereignty of God. It is on the particle, not the wave. It is on the first side of the coin rather than the second side of the coin. So brace yourself. Brace yourself. My main idea this morning, it's going to be up on the screen, and it's this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a quote, of course, from the book of Revelation, but it's also in the Psalms. It's also in the book of Jonah. It's also in 1 Samuel and a lot of other places. Salvation belongs to God. It's not something that is owed to us. It's not a creed that we follow. It's not a thing that we earn. Salvation is something that God gives to us. It's his amazing grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Grace is a gift. Salvation belongs to the Lord. My points are going to be up on the screen. It's going to flow right from this passage. This is a passage, often we say this, this is a passage that churches would love to skip. I was very tempted to skip this passage this morning, 
but we believe in the scriptures, we want to present it to you, and so our points are going to flow right from the screen. They're going to flow from Romans 9, and they're this. Number one, the identity of God's people. Number two, God's mercy and sovereignty. Number three, God's will and power. And number four, God's faithfulness to his people. God's faithfulness to his people. So buckle up. Here we go. Last week we finished, if you were here, we finished Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most powerful and well-known chapters in the Bible. It starts with, there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. And it ends with, there is now no separation for those in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. He's paid for our sins. It is paid in full. It is finished. And there is now no separation no condemnation, no separation. And the chapter, as we saw last week, it ends with this, this famous, these famous few sentences. It says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now why is that? Why is that not just a sentimental kind of verse? Well, because in Romans 8, a few verses earlier, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he, pre he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Said another way, God's not going to lose his people. God's not going to lose his people. God's loved you and I, if you find yourself in Christ this morning, he's loved you and I before there was anything bad going on inside of you. He's loved you and I this morning before there was anything bad going on outside of us. God has loved us. His love for us this morning isn't circumstantial. His love for us this morning isn't conditional. His love for us this morning is patient. It's constant. It's a love that never gives up on us. But then we get to Romans 9, and Paul, the writer, sees that there is a giant iceberg of an objection before him. There's a giant iceberg of an objection to the promise that God is never going to lose his people. He's saying all of this. He's saying, God's never going to let you go. You're his people. He's never going to let you go. He's loved you. He's saved you. He's never going to let you go. And he sees, as he's saying that, that the readers back then would have seen a massive objection, would have, would have rendered a massive objection against him. Now, what is that objection? What is that objection? Well, it's Israel. It's Israel. They're supposed to be God's people, and yet they're rejecting God's Messiah. The objection today might sound like, well, wait, you're saying that, that God never gives up on his people. What about the people who walk away from Jesus? What about the people who deconstruct what about the people who are raised in the best possible setting, the best possible Christian family? They get baptized, they say they believe, and then they could care less. That seems like that's a problem when you're talking about this idea that God never gives up on his people. Well, enter Romans 9, number, uh, verse number 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So here we see the heart of the Apostle Paul. He's got what Baptist preachers call a burden for the lost. He's, he's a Jewish Christian, and he's thinking about all his family, all his friends, his brothers and his sisters, and he's thinking they had the perfect setup. They had the perfect setup, and yet they're not interested in God. They don't see it. He thinks, I'd do anything to help them to see the Messiah. And then as the passage continues, we see that he answers the question. The question at the heart of this iceberg, the question at the center of this objection is this. Did God's word fail? Did God's plan throughout the ages fail? Does God lose his people? And his response, we'll pick up right in verse 6. He says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He says, yeah, I get it. As you're looking in my family, my people, we had the perfect setup. We had the freedoms. God was in the center of our lives. We had the sacrificial system. We had the temple. We had the, we had the worship. We had God's law. We had all of it. We had the perfect setup to understand and receive the Messiah. And yet it went terribly wrong. But God's word, God's plan, it hasn't failed, Paul says. It hasn't failed. Now this really leads us to our first point this morning. The identity of God's people. The identity of God's people. Paul's going to tell us why. Why God's word, why God's plan hasn't failed. Verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. For not all who are born in Hollywood belong to Hollywood. For not all who are residents of Wall Street are Wall Street. For not all who are Capitol Hill are Capitol Hill. He says the word Israel has dual meaning. The dual meaning is that it could refer to a, a nation state. It could refer to a people, a culture, a race, even a religion. But it could also mean the people of God, the sons and daughters of God the covenant people of God, those who truly embrace all of God's promises. He says the same thing in verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham just because there is offspring. He's saying the word of God, the plan of God, the salvation of God hasn't failed just because Jesus isn't being accepted by Israel. He says, yeah, we had a good setup. Yeah, we had freedoms. God was in the center of our lives. We grew up with it but salvation belongs to the Lord. What he's saying is that the true identity of the people of God all throughout history hasn't been about lineage. It hasn't been about ethnicity or birth. He says the true people of God all throughout history have been those whom God has loved, those whom God has chosen, those who trust him, those who love him, who live for him, and always believe his promises by faith. Now notice, to support this idea, he gives a lot of examples. He turns our attention to the book of Genesis, particularly Isaac and Ishmael, but also Jacob and Esau. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, 
but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this, next, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God essentially says yes to Isaac, no to Ishmael. And before they are ever born, yes to Jacob, no to Esau. Paul's point is that throughout time, God has always had a people for himself, a people he won't lose, a love that's not circumstantial, a love that's not conditional, a patient love, a constant love, a love that'll never give up on us. The Jewish Christians then were saying, God's word, his plan, it seems to have failed. A lot of God's people don't seem to be sticking with the program. They're, they're not accepting Jesus as the final fulfillment of everything. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. God's people are sticking with the program. They are accepting Jesus as the final fulfillment of everything. And therefore, God's word, his plan, it hasn't failed. Said another way, he's saying the true people of God, those truly in relationship with God, has never and will never be based on descent or race, or ethnicity, or having a good setup, or even having God in the center of your house. But instead, it's based on His grace. From God's perspective, outside of time, His election of us. God's grace and calling that comes to a person, and opens their eyes, and gives them a living relationship with Himself, and transforms them. And the news this morning is, if you find yourself in Christ this morning, that's your story as well. God has saved you by his grace. Ultimately, it wasn't your family, it wasn't your ethnicity, or having a good setup or a bad setup, having God at the center or not having God at the center. Jesus sought you when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. You've been saved by his sheer grace, by his mercy and grace alone. He chose you, he set his love on you, and he'll never let you go. Light is a particle, and it's a wave, and we're looking very, very, very deeply at the particle. Now, essentially, what Paul said here, just to summarize this, is when people believe, the reason they believe is because God's chosen them. The, people, the, the reason people believe is because God's chosen them. He saved them. And, of course, this is going to make people really, really mad. <laughs> it's going to make some of you very, very mad, which really leads us to the second point this morning, God's mercy and sovereignty. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He anticipates that we'll say that's not fair. It doesn't seem right that God could choose some, but not all. Is God being unjust? And he says here, nope, not at all. And he turns our attention this time to the book of Exodus. First to Moses, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He says, think back to Exodus. After Israel sins, Moses, he begs God to stay with them. 
And then God shows up in all his power and all his glory, and, and God says, yeah, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. The central idea there is that nobody, nobody has any claim on God's mercy. Nobody. None of us this morning has a claim on God's mercy. Why is that? Because mercy, by its definition, is not something that we're entitled to. Mercy isn't a right. To say that mercy belongs to everybody negates the very essence of mercy. If it were given to everyone, it would no longer be, be mercy. It would be a form of justice. It would be a form of an entitlement. And the only thing we're entitled to, according to the Bible, is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The only thing we're entitled to, the only thing we have a claim to this morning is to get what we deserve, and that's not mercy. The shock this morning isn't that God doesn't extend his mercy to everyone. The shock this morning is that he would extend it to anyone at all. Praise God for his mercy. Secondly, he adds to Pharaoh, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He says, look, there's no injustice in God. There's no injustice on God's part. For God to choose to save some sinners, but not all sinners, doesn't make him unjust. For God to give mercy is his right. It's amazing grace. For God to give justice to sinful people like you and I, and to double down is his right. It's perfect justice. Why? Because God is absolutely free. He's sovereign. He's the only one who is truly good and righteous. He's the creator of the heavens and earth. It's his show. It's all about him. He sees it all. And here, Pharaoh's the example. Pharaoh's not a good guy. Pharaoh's enslaving people. He's killing babies. He's not a good guy. And in Exodus, God comes and he uses Pharaoh. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He doubles down on him. It's perfectly just. God drags out the process of getting his people free. Why? In order to get glory. The point is, is, is Paul is saying God has a will. He has a plan. He has a purpose for this universe. And salvation is rooted in that will. Because God is absolutely free. He's sovereign. To give mercy is his right. It's amazing grace. But to give justice, to, to act against sinful people like you and I, is also his right. It's perfect justice. He has his own good and perfect will. It's a will that's impossible this morning for us to completely understand. But it's a will that's good. It's a will that's right. Now, of course, this is going to upset people as well. And he anticipates that as well as his argument continues, which really leads us to our third point this morning, God's will and God's power. Verse 19, as Paul continues, You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, he anticipates someone will say, okay, so you're saying, Paul, it's, it's not unfair if God chooses some and passes over others because he owes no one mercy. And it's not unfair that it's if that's all according to, to his perfect will, okay, but if everything's according to his perfect will, then why is anyone held accountable? Why does God blame anyone at all? Because at the very least, 
even if we're totally free, why even create a universe where there's a thing called sin? In other words, he says, if God is so sovereign, how can we be responsible? He could show mercy. He's all-powerful. He doesn't have to show justice or double down. How can a person be accountable for their actions if everything is just according to God's will? If he's so sovereign that everything comes from his hand or passes through his hand, how can we be blamed? Isn't it all just according to his plan? How is light a particle if it's a wave? And he answers, verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He says, shut up. (laughs) He's not trying to shut down questions. He answers just like God does in the book of Job, where God says, who are you? Did you create the universe? Do you know how all this works? Verse 20, well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, he's saying God is absolutely free. He's sovereign. He's the only one who is truly good. He's the creator of heaven and earth. It's his show, and he can do whatever he wants. And just like a potter, he has right to shape. He has the right to shape the clay exactly how he wants for different purposes. So too, God has the right to shape fallen humanity according to his purposes, mercy or wrath, grace or justice. Paul is saying salvation belongs to the Lord. Nobody has a claim on his mercy. Everybody deserves justice. He goes on, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's a very difficult passage. Said another way, he says God is so free, God is so sovereign. He says God has the right to deal with sinful people the way that he wants. He says in salvation he's given some mercy. He's prepared them for glory. It's his choice. He prepared them beforehand in glory, verse 23. But he says, but in wrath... He's allowed others to prepare themselves for destruction. It's their choice. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. There's no he, verse 22. By who? Doesn't say. He says, in salvation, he's given some mercy. He's prepared them for glory. He's opened their eyes to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But he says, in wrath, he's allowed others to prepare themselves for for destruction, to remain disinterested, to remain stuck in oneself. Why? Well, verse 23 in order that the riches of his glory would be made known to the vessels of his mercy. Said another way, in order that his mercy and that his justice would be glorified, that God would be glorified as the merciful one, that God would be glorified as the just one. Center of the universe, the glory of God. We're at the town hall, we might say, of Calvinism now. The passage continues, and we see our fourth and final point this morning, God's faithfulness to his people. God's faithfulness to his people. He says, God's making the riches of his glory known to the vessels of his mercy, verse 24, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. So Paul comes back and he comes full circle to his original question. His original question, of course, was, has the word of God failed? Has the plan of God failed? He said God's never going to give up on his people. He's not going to lose his people. But as he looks out to Israel, he realizes so many are not on board. They've had the perfect setup. They've had God at the center of their upbringings. They've had freedoms, everything. But when the day finally came and God himself shows up, most rejected him. They said, this is not our Messiah. And so there's this massive question. Did God's word fail? Did his plan fail? Did God lose his people? But Paul says here, no, not at all. He now turns not to Genesis, not to Exodus, but he turns to the prophets. And he says the true identity of God's people all throughout history has never been about ethnicity or about lineage or about birth. The true people all throughout history have been those whom God has loved. It's about grace, not race, we might say. Those whom God has chosen. Those like you and I who were not his people, but who he has called his people. Those like you and I this morning who were not his beloved, but he has called us his beloved. Those whom he's chosen. Those whom he's called to himself. Those like you and I who he has saved through the son of David this morning. The one who said, before Abraham I am. The true and better Isaac, the true and better Jacob, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. As we board the plane this morning to fly off Calvinism Island, though there's a lot of meanies on this island, though there's a lot of nerds on this island, do remember this plane <laughs> and the things you saw here is true. It's true. God is so much bigger than our ways of articulating him. He's so much grander than our understanding this morning. We desire certainty so much. Well, there's things we can be certain about, but there are mysteries of God. And this truth, these truths are meant to cause us to worship God, the one who saved us, the one who is and was and always will be, the author and perfecter of our faith. Today, if you find yourself not having faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to quote the words of John 3.16 to you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Trust him today. Believe him today. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord today. Welcome him into your life. Repent. Trust in God. Turn to him this morning. He can change you. He can make you his, his people. He can bring you into his family. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, 
please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.